All right, everybody, and welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast. I hope you're having an incredible day. My name is Jason Kleep, and on today's episode, we have Coach Chris Hinshaw. Now, Chris and I met many, many years ago. He came on as my endurance coach and really transformed the way I looked at running and endurance, made it fun, made it quantifiable, and has impacted so many athletes and uh, you know members in the gym for so many years. But it didn't all start that way. He started off as a professional triathlete. Then he became a, in the professional sales environment. And today we dive into a variety of things. What I really wanted to talk to him about was how do you go from having a full-time career, making you know great money, to giving that all up and then pursuing your passion of being a coach? And what helped you drive you into that decision? Before we dive into that part, he goes into a really you know touching story about him and his family uh, in Hawaii. And primarily it's because him and I were talking. He's like, man, you know, I can't really uh, speak well today. And I was like, oh, what happened? He started talking about this, this incident and we just, we just captured it on the air. So you'll get a little bit of that. You'll get a lot of Chris talking about his background and how he made that leap. And I think it was extremely insightful. If you guys haven't rated or reviewed this podcast, there is no paid advertisement. We just really appreciate you taking a screenshot, sharing it on social media, tagging us, tagging Henshaw, and then just leaving us a quick review and a five-star rating would mean a lot to us. Now, without any further conversation, let's dive into an exceptional episode with Mr. Chris Henshaw. Let's go. Tell me what happened with this um situation in, in Hawaii. I, I didn't know about this. So yeah, I didn't so, know about it. Maybe others don't. So like my voice, I have to be really careful of my voice. I do a lot of talking and um, a, about two and a half years ago on the big island of Hawaii, but we just do a family trip and we were in the ocean, been going to this place since I was nine years old. And I know the water, obviously, you know, I, I know how to swim real well. I'm, yeah, real well. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm okay there. And um, we knew a swell was picking up, but we had no idea the magnitude of it. Um, in a very short amount of time when we were in the water, the waves went from the face size to about a meter and a half to probably two stories tall. It was the biggest waves I've ever seen. I mean, it was, it was incredible in the, in the height and the escalation. And how quickly it could happen. And it caught everybody off guard in the water. There was probably, because we were at a resort, there was probably a good 50 people. Uh, it was during April, you know, spring break time, and there's 50 people in the water. And I was there with all of my kids, and it was coming in. And the, and the problem is, is when the waves keep coming in and they get bigger and bigger, it's harder and harder to get in because you're going to get into that impact zone and yep. you don't want to take that risk. And I was trying to get my kids but you know, in, but they were thinking, oh, this is cool. It's fun. And my kids are old. They're in their 20s. And um, next thing you know, it was like the a rip started forming in the middle of this cove because the waves were coming in so big and, and closing out the whole cove. The water had to come out somewhere. And so in the center section of this cove, there was like almost a river taking you straight out. The problem was is that as the waves were getting bigger and bigger, they were breaking further and further out. And so it was easy to get caught inside. Well, I get, I get, two of my, I get one of my kids in and then two of them got caught out. And I, w- I was sitting there and it's like, should I get in? Are they going to be okay? And I swam back out 
And at first, my kids thought, oh, this is cool. Like, we're good. And next thing you know, they both look at me, and you could see that fear, right? Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. That's why it's not a very good story. And, and so the fear, like, when you feel that as a parent, there is nothing like that ever in the world. Were it, they caught in the rip? Not yet. They, no. No. So they were, the problem was is the waves were so big. I mean, picture a wave when it comes to you and it's 20 feet up top and you can't swim underneath these because it's not deep enough. So you get uh. every time you're just pounded and pounded. And I come up to them. I swim over. I have no fins, nothing. And I go over and I'm like, and before I can say, are you okay? My oldest daughter, who was 26 at the time, she says, dad, I'm scared. <laughs> Like Dude, a, that oh, is not a good one. No, no, no. Right. And Especially you, not in the ocean. No. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I know I'm going to get them over to the riptide because the fastest way out is in that rip to take them straight out. Right. Which is going against everything that they want. Right. I've got to take them into the dark, dark water. And anyway, as I get them out there and my daughter looks, my son, who was, you know, 20 at the time, he's like, we're good. We're good. Because you got them past the break. Right. Past yeah. the break. And they were okay. They knew. And I turn and I look. And I see a girl that is a little girl and there's no one else left and she's way inside. And I see her go like up, pop up out of the water after a wave. And I'm like, wow, like, and I, I, I was sitting there and I remember seeing her as I was going to save, you know, my kids. And I'm like, the tension that I had of like, should I get her because she was 11, 12 years old or do I go get my kids? And I had to leave her. I had to leave this girl, and I turned when I was with my kids. I look back, and I see her, and she's still alive. I can't even believe it. So instinct, I just go, and I swim. I swim about 100 meters across this cove. I go over to her, and as soon as I get there, she pops up after a wave, and she says, don't let me die. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and by this time, I'm exhausted. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm worried now about But your myself. kids are past the break. They're doing good. They're just treading water. I, but I, I can't even a... see them because the uh, waves are so big. Oh, yeah. And the people you can't see from the, wa um, from the oh, beach, oh. no guards are coming out because they're afraid. And so it's like I went and I, I got this girl. And when she says, don't let me live. And then the next thing she says to me, she says, I'm a good swimmer. And I'm like, I could work with that. I could work with that. And I told her right there before the next big wave set, I said, I have to let go of your hand when this wave comes. But I promise you, if you make it up the other side, I will be there. And every time she kept coming up and coming up, well, this whole thing for me of ducking under waves for 20 minutes, like it, it caused my small intestines to twist inside. And I, like a long story short, I was able to get the girl out. Um, my, my brother and the nephews who um, are Olympic trial swimmers and stuff, they came out and they were the ones that rescued all of these people, you know, was my, my, my brother and my nephews. And, and um, we made it back in, but that, that night uh, we were having dinner and I just didn't feel right. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of, of, of just drinking some water, it was just like, I got to go to I got to go throw up. And my small intestine um, from twisting, I just couldn't get food down. Well, at about 11 o'clock that night, I had to go to the hospital. And I go to the hospital. And the doctor's like, in my stomach, my upper abdomen was really extended. And, he, and, he, and it was so sensitive. And I couldn't throw up anymore. And it was just like, he says, your, your, your intestine's twisted. And I'm like, what do you do How with do you that? How do you solve that? Yeah. So the guy says, well, what we're going to do is we're going to stick a, a, a drain through your nose down in. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of drain the backup 
in your small intestine, and hopefully with the reduction of pressure, will untwist. But if it doesn't, we're going to operate. Oh. And I'm like, well, you know, my st- I got good abs. I mean, at 56, <laughs> I'm still looking good. And like, right? I'm, like, you don't want to get cut open and, and mess up with the abs, huh? Can we swear on the show? I don't know, a little bit. All right. So, well, I won't swear because I don't swear. But I'm sitting there. I'm stressed. And I'm like, Doug, you can't like, do it. And meanwhile, like shooting full of morphine. And I'm dying. And I'm like, no, you can't cut it open. And, and Heidi, my better half, is she's sitting there. And she's all, baby, I have to love I effing love a big long scar. You're so effing hot. And I'm like, okay, Doc, you cut that thing. Let's not even waste with the nasal thing. Let's just go straight in. Anyway, I stayed in the hospital for four days. And, and the problem was, is that, and it eventually untwisted by itself. And, but, my, but, but the acidity came up during that incident and it dissolved part of my larynx. And I, I was starting to lose my voice over the last like two years. And I couldn't figure out why. And I went in and got it scoped. And they're like, you know, you've dissolved part of it. And it's now been six, seven months that I've been trying to fix it. And I, I have to be really careful. It's, it's one of those things that I need my voice. And if yeah. I lose it, this thing's over. Well, and that's how this whole thing got started, this conversation, actually, because you're saying, hey, I'm pretty beat up. Because, you know, we're at these events, you're talking to a lot of people, you're putting on events, you're doing a lot of different things. And so, obviously, it takes your voice. And I think that kind of transfers i'm glad your intestine is okay and that I'm, girl survived. i'm glad you saved she, that girl she sent me a, an incredible note so while i was at dinner the dad came over and he found me oh really and he said i thought she was dead for 20 minutes i thought she was gone and no. then she comes back up the beach dude it was so heavy i mean and i know the space that you're in it's like those emotions and things you 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 it's, 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 it's incredible. Real. To, right. And, and you don't realize in those situations what you do and how you feel until you're tested. And it was impulse. And, and I mean, I, I still think about it every day just because every time my voice goes out, it's like, man, like that was a radical time. Yeah. And you, yeah. And you do it yeah. again. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And so I think what's interesting is that when you and I met, you were working full time in a sales job, making incredible money. And how did you go? So I want to talk about two things. The first one was, how did you go from being a guy who had a lifestyle that was expensive? You lived in Menlo Park, had an expensive house. You're making good money doing sales, hundreds of thousands, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you decided to pivot and become an endurance coach. I mean, yeah. that's ultimately what it was. I mean, because right. you, had, you had competed as a triathlete for many, many years, got into the professional career. And then it's not like you were coaching part-time or something. You were like cold turkey for a while. Mm-hmm. And then we met, we started blah, 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 blah. And then you, like literally a whole 180. So how do you go from, I'm, I'm curious, how do you go from being a career employee, right? Making great money. And so then your lifestyle adjusts to that, right? You're used to living in nice places, going to nice places, and you, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it's adjust that to, to do what you, what you love. So what is that process? What did that look like for you? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who are in a career they might not, you know, find huge fulfillment in, but they kind of have golden handcuffs, right? I mean, they, they've, uh, they've, they've, they have a lifestyle that's adjusted to making this money and they know that if they pivot, maybe they won't be making that same thing. So what, what did that process take me through that mindset of, of why you made the change, you know, and how long did it take you to make that change? 
So I was in sales. Um, what I sold was um, I ultimately got into the business of selling uh, cable assemblies and power cords. So if you think about what <laughs> sounds it, exciting, it was. But the thing is, is that it's it's an interesting market in the sense that you think about it as a commodity, um, but it really is a a specialty type of a product. So power cord cable assembly, we. Apple was an account. Uh, I sold them 220 million cords. So the wall socket that you charge your phone on and yeah. the cord that goes into your phone, yeah. that's what we made. Huh. So I was West Coast. Those things Coast. are super expensive and then they change over all the time. You're talking about the actual cord. like And the, the wall socket. Like, so those... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so part of it is, is like you take an account like Apple and working in Silicon Valley, it's an account that, do you know on that cord, it, it is by design when the consumer opens the box... There is an emotional feeling that they have when they and and the thing is is that on their products there is a look to it. There's a feel, meaning when you touch it, and then there's a smell. There is all intent behind it. It is one of the most incredible companies that is carving out this consumer experience. Oh, hundred percent. And to be a part of those things, that was the charge for me. That was fun to be on the tip of the spear in terms of innovation. I was in sales um, and I got into that space in around 2000 into cable assemblies and I was hired on as a vice president of sales um, and I've got a solid engineering background and so they brought and put like the engineering under that space as well because what we were doing was we were going into these organizations and essentially pitching them through sales our engineering capabilities. And ultimately what we were doing was let us take over on your product design. Bring us in-house. We will fund all of the R&D. We'll make all the samples. We'll do all the drawings. We can turn them around fast because we're inside. Right. And we will pay all of our own people. And so that was the way in which we were going about you know, capturing all of these accounts. And it was giving me incredible exposure to meeting top-level executives within Silicon Valley at the highest level and pitching them on concepts, advanced concepts. And I'm not talking about normal sales. What they do is they come in and they compete on price. And then we're going to talk about on-time delivery. And then we're going to talk about quality, blah, 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 blah. You have to find some value proposition that other people aren't talking about. Yeah. And that's what I was good at. I was trying to find something that was authentic, something that was unique, that was our competitive advantage. And that's where I spent my time. And I got really successful at it. I mean, really, like you said, I lived in Menlo Park, which is one of the more affluent areas in the world. Um, and every year I was just making significantly more money for you know years and years, just and pile on top of one another. The problem was, is I was working all the time. Mm. And you know this. You get caught up in that. You get caught up in the, I can make more money if I work harder. Well, the problem is, is that you realize I'm not satisfied. So what do you do? You spend more. Next yeah, thing you know, you're buying, you know, a 545, you know, BMW. <laughs> you're, you're buying the, you know, 80-inch TV. And next thing you know, it's like, are you making a headway? Right. Really? You're not. Back, the, back 10 years ago, the 80-inch TV was very, very expensive. It was $10,000. Yeah, now you can get it for about a, you know, 500 <laughs> But, yeah. But no, you're right though. You know, as you make more money, your lifestyle adjusts. And I, I've I've been victim to this as well. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have to make more to keep up with that lifestyle. And so it's that was a, happening for it's you. It's a right? brutal process. And and the thing is is that because you are in this this success mode, the buzz is big. And and, and you ignore those signs. You you sit there and it's like 
you look at the bank account and you, you, what you end up doing, you don't look at, wow, I'm still at zero. What you end up looking at is your revenue. Mm. And it's like, boy, that's a big number that last month. Right, right, right. And, and so what you do is you cloud what the reality is and you convince yourself that you're doing the right thing. And you say, ultimately, it's going to correct itself. But it never did. It never, never, ever did. And so I was sitting there and, and now I'm, I'm, you know, 10 years in and I had been in sales now for 20 plus years. And I know the routine in talking to commodity managers, directors of materials, purchasing managers, you, human behavior falls into patterns. And when you hear tones of people's voice, when you hear their initial words, you know the skit, you know the routine. Right. And the thing for me is that it, it became almost a game. So I'll tell you a little backstory on me. I had really bad OCD as a kid really bad and I would end up tapping things as I would walk down like if I would walk down you know the street here in Miami I would end up tapping light poles on the front side and the back side and if I missed it in a block I'd have to go all the way back to the start of the block and do it all over again because I believe that it would bring me bad luck if I missed and I believed it bring me good luck if, yeah. if, and it was real but I was a kid I didn't know and so when I'd walk down the hallway of my house I would touch doorknobs boom 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 I happened to be in seventh grade. My best friend were walking down the hallway and the overhang had these four by four posts holding up the, the overhang in the walkway. And I was tapping these and I missed one. And I go, hold on. And I ran back and he's watching me as I'm coming back towards him. And he's like, what are you doing? Ma, it brings me luck. He's all, you freak. <laughs> and as a seventh grader, I was like, that hurt me. You know, my best friend calling me a freak. And so I didn't ever did it again. I happened to be visiting a psychiatrist once. And I love talking to other people, you know, just learning about myself. And that's one of the reasons why I was able to make a switch is, is getting input from others. And she says, how do you sell? And I said, I know if I say something that it's going to trigger them to say something. And I know because I got them to say what it was, I'm going to say something else, which is going to drive them to say something which is predicted as well. And then I'm going to do the other side. Essentially, what I did is took that OCD that tap the front side, tap the back side, and manipulate a situation. I do it all in my head. For I sales. Could, right. I could, and, and it directly related to your job. Right. And I got really good because I can manipulate the conversation based upon the opening statement. And I knew the track to take. And that, to me, for a period of time, was kind of fun. And then I found CrossFit. And I started CrossFit in 2008. And, um, you know, I've been involved in sports and coaching, you know, from my early days in triathlons loved it but there was just no opportunity you know it was almost like you sat down with your parents and it's like time to grow up chris yeah right and that's the problem is that you know we're we're taught my generation is taught and maybe it's true for you jay i, I you know your parents sit down and you look and they're not telling you this but you learn by example it's time to get married it's time to have kids it's time to big a take a big house, it's time to get a loan, and it's time to sit in a job forever. Yep. And so that's what I did. It's like I sat there and it was like I left something I loved because I'm 28 years old and it's time to settle down. Right, right. Which was right. the, which was, I admire kids today because that doesn't happen. No, it's not nearly as big. Like in Iran, for example, for my dad, you had basically um, two tracks. You're either a doctor or an engineer. That's yeah. it. 
Yeah. Like any, that, that was it. Like when you're coming out of Iran, there's no other option. Right. Like, it's like, hey, are you going the the doctor <laughs> track or the engineer track for him? And he and you know he ended up going the engineer track, and so did my father-in-law. But you know now things are changing. Like you see a lot more entrepreneurial spirit, but it's still tough, right? You still have those public perception of you know you're a triathlete, and then all of a sudden, I, I, for you to go from your job to then all of a sudden becoming a quote coach. Yeah, that was. I so mean, dude, your family must just be like, "What are you talking about, Chris?" Well, I mean, that was the thing. Is like, <laughs> you're it, the hardest part is 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 staying authentic to yourself. I mean, that's the, the the hardest hardest thing. I mean, especially still today, is that you know a lot of people come up and they're like, "If you do it this way, you know what? You could go exponential." And staying true is the hardest. And so, when I was sitting there and and I I, I end up like finding the sport of CrossFit and it was like, and I'm watching these coaches and the community of CrossFit's very unique in the way in which it coaches because what they're really doing is they're taking a broad range of athlete and they're recreational athletes. They're not specialists in anything. They're not phenomenal in any one movement. And what they're doing is this through this, 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 this community based approach, right? They're creating a level of happiness in someone who has lost their fitness to someone that truly has their fitness and they bring them together. And what I was noticing was this approach that CrossFit took was it was centered around this community, but it was around this level of happiness that lured me in. I looked at that and I'm like, that coach is truly a salesperson. That person is doing exactly what I do in my day-to-day job. But what they're doing it in is a different context. Sure. Mine was through manipulation, right? Sure, yeah. Theirs is through this passion. And I looked at that, and, I, and it drew me in. It was like I wanted to feel that feel. And I, I kept watching other coaches. Now, keep in mind, I was, I was coached at Santa Cruz Central. So yeah, the original back in the day. Right? Yeah. So I was around Sherry Keener, who worked with me a lot, Annie Sakamoto, Eva T, Michelle Moots, Jimmy Baker, Rob Miller. I mean, the core. You talk about enthusiasm there. It was contagious, and it never left. It created a spark. And I wanted to find that in my job, but it was nowhere to be found. I was essentially just, you know what? I was clipping coupons. I, every day I'd go in, I was on autopilot. Yes. You're clipping coupons. I like that term. Okay. Yeah. I was on autopilot. And the thing was is that, you know, you end up as you age, you know, so uh, I was 45 years old. As you age, you know, you're, you're, you have this, this massive debt. You have now kids in college. You have, you know, all these other payments that this overhead that you're trying to keep up on. You know, it's like I, I didn't have if I had, you know, cable TV, I didn't have like the bronze package. I had the triple gold package, which high def. Right, right, right. right? Of so, course. And so what you were doing was is like, I'm just going to go in and keep doing what I'm doing. And I was a robot and I was great at it, but I wasn't enjoying it. But I was sitting there and it's like, what else am I going to do? I have to keep the machine moving. And there's one guy that turns the crank. That's you. Right. And so you end up now realizing that and now the weight of the world falls on you. And then it's like, man, this is not, I'm bombed. Dude, I, I'm, I'm totally relating to what you're saying right now because, you know, you know, I just, my house is a yeah. contract right now. Yeah. You know, I always used to think bigger was better. Bigger was better. Start off in this size house, bought this one, this one, this one. In the Bay Area, things are expensive. Yeah. And kids are going to school and this, 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 this. But as you make more money, you just, it, it seems to just go. I mean, right? that's the thing is that, you know what, for people listening, you buy a $3 million home, 
your property taxes are going to be around $36,000 a year, every year. Every year you have to pay that. And don't forget, that's post-tax money. Yeah. So let's just say you, you have to make 60 just to pay your property taxes. Well, in California, let's yeah. say it's even worse than yeah. that. I mean, well, yeah. that's the thing. Is like we, We're not all lucky enough to live in Tennessee. <laughs> right. Yeah. So for me, when I was realizing that, but the problem is, is you're stuck. And then who are you going to talk to? There's no one you're going to talk to. And so... For me, when I got into it and I started just taking people out to the you know, track and, and you know, I was running twice a week and, and the group got pretty big. And by this time I was at you know, NC, NC Fit and, and I, was, I was doing three classes a week and people were just coming out and joining me. And I was just doing it for free. They were just joining in the track and I'd write these personalized workouts for everybody. And it was, a, it was an incredible feeling. And I still had my full-time job. I mean, I was traveling around the world. I mean, the stress that I had at that moment was, was high. Yeah. But it was relief when I would show up on the track and I would be able to coach for free. It was an incredible feeling. Yeah, that the we way- had those like night, uh, it was like Tuesday, Thursday yeah. nights or something like that at the, uh, what track was that? Um, Foothill College. Foothill, Foothill College, yep. yeah. Well, so when I, I would go out there and I, <laughs> winter times, you know, winters are soft in, in California, you know, that's really, you know, not that bad, but it was like, I would go out there in the middle of winter and it was like, I hope nobody shows it's wet. I don't please. And then remember Kadar? Yeah, of course. Kadar would show up every single time. One person, I had one person for an entire two months of, of a winter. It was Kadar. And he's like, this is the greatest luxury of my life. And he was in the same boat. He's got this grinding job and he comes to the track because he gets one-on-one with me and I stoke his fire. He's just like, I leave here and I'm energized until I could see you again. And I was like, boy, Kadar, every time, every time. Well, that, that class ultimately grew to about oh, 80 yeah. people. Oh, yeah. And it was just free, but it was a space for me to find relief and to charge my batteries. And so... When you happened to, to contact me in December of, of 2012, you gave me a shot at the highest level. And the thing was, is that I had never coached anybody in the CrossFit space nearly of your caliber, ever. And when I got off the phone with you, I was so excited when I talked to you on the phone that day. And, and I'll never forget. And I get off the phone. I, I talk to Heidi and I go, that was Jason Kalipa. And he's like, what do you want? And he's, I'm all, he wants me to be his coach. And after the ether wears off, I'm like, now panic sets in because now I have this responsibility and I already made a commitment, like, you know, let's like meet up and, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And she says, well, you know what small doses of CrossFit's done for you and your endurance. Why don't you just take this pure CrossFit guy and give him what you know, true endurance. And I'm like, but that's not being done in the sport. It's not being done. That's not how people are training their endurance in CrossFit. Because at that time, CrossFit was through CrossFit Endurance, which was pure speed, you know, and, and high intensity, short time domains. And I'm like, you mean experiment on them? She's like, you get to hang out with the 2008 champ. What do you have to lose? And I'm like, well, I might ruin him as an athlete. And she's like, how long will that take? And I'm like, I'll ruin him in 10 weeks. She's like, then go hang out and run with the champ for 10 weeks. And yeah. You still got your regular job. Right, right. <laughs> And so, I love it. so that's how it started was it's just, but it was also, remember what I said about being authentic. It's like, do what you know, don't go and be manipulated by something else. Do what you know. Yeah. And so you brought to the table what you had been doing for years and years and years in your triathlon background. Yep. But at what thousands point? of workouts that I've done, thousands that I've written, 
I gave you what I knew. I knew about physiology in that space. I knew what the adaptations were. I just didn't know whether or not it'd work. Right. And, and so I sure enough it did, but, yep. but I mean, and but, then, uh, but how do you make the jump? I mean, you talk about how you feel like a hamster, you know, in a wheel with, with your job and I relate to the more expense, of course, yeah. but how did you make the jump from when you actually quit your job? That's what I'm curious about. So at that point, it was like you were making a bunch of money. I was making zero. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm charged zero for the first three years in CrossFit. Yeah. I did it for free. Yeah. And so, no, so what I did was is that we have access in the sport of CrossFit. Like, here we are. We're at Wadapalooza. The access that we have in the sport is unlike any other sport in the world. You can walk straight up to a Jason Kalipa and have a conversation, which is incredible. The access that we had. And yeah. so, you, Jay, gave me incredible access to a wide range of people. I mean... I met Neil Maddox and Miranda Oldroyd, and I met, I met um, Garrett Fisher, and then I met Lauren Fisher. I met Camille. I mean, the yeah, list rich. was yeah, right, extensive, it. extensive. And the thing was is like what we always want is opportunity. But the thing is is that we also, you know, opportunity to prove your craft. But we also have an opportunity to learn, but we must listen. And I would always sit and I would listen. I would, I would listen to the words that they're saying. And I had a chance through you. I met Mike Cordano, and you know, which we know. Yeah. And if you've ever met Mike, he is one of the most dynamic businessmen in the world today. And I'm at the track, sitting on the grass at Foothill, and just having conversations. And he says to me, he says, you know, Chris, you realize the transition when you're going from your regular job to coaching. There's this transition period. And it softens both ends. You're not the same salesperson you were, and you're not living up to your potential as a coach. Yep. And I know you don't see that. I think that you believe that you can do them both, and you can do them in parallel, and be great at them both. You're an amazing coach, but you don't see what your full value is yet. You don't because you're clouded by something in the past. Mm. And I sat and I listened to him. And, and the thing is, is, you got to have some respect for what he's accomplished. Yeah. And if you don't listen to people, you miss it. You listen to the words. And is that true? And so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, and he told me, he says, what's driving you not making this switch? And I didn't have an answer. And I thought about it. And it was fear. And you know, the thing is, is that you talk to kids nowadays, and, and you know, even when we were kids, if we had some, you know, paper route, and, you know, the guy dropping off the papers gives us, you know, some, some, you know, static one day, it's like, I'm out, see ya, quit, and you just bail. I'll yeah. go, now I'm going to go lifeguard. Yeah, yeah. As an adult, because of all the overhead that we have, the weight of the world, we don't want to take any risk. Right. And so I've spoke to you about it, and you're like, you said it's kind of the same sentiments, but when I sat and I thought about it, it's like, it's my risk, and I'm afraid. And I said to myself, and I talked to Heidi, I go, you know what? And this was, this was after the, this, just before the 2015 games. I said, I'm going to quit. And she says, why are you going to quit your job? And I said, you know what? Because I never want to be afraid to do what I want to do. Yeah. Ever. And you know what's probably really cool? By the way, uh, Mike Cordano, he's the president of Western Digital. And he's been instrumental in, um, in our business. He's been, he's been very impactful. And he has a lot of business knowledge. But you know what's really interesting about that is that I was talking to Juliet Starrett, mm -hmm. and when she decided to go from being a lawyer 
to a coach or owning a gym, right? She said that what was impactful for her, this is, I'm just sharing this, you probably feel the same way, is that she was, I don't know, let's just say for the sake of argument, 35 when she decided to go from uh, being a full-time lawyer to owning a gym. And the reason why she did that was a, a mentor of hers was like, hey, let's just say this thing doesn't work out, right? Let's just say in two years it doesn't work out. You still have the next 30 years of your life to practice law if you want to, right? Right. For you, you were doing sales for so many years. If it didn't work out, you always could revert back towards mm-hmm. sales. Yeah. But at least you, you never know what you don't know. I mean, you should go out in there and try it. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that you never want to get stale. You want to go out and live. And I think that that's the problem is, is that life nowadays, if you're moderately successful, you have a tendency to just mm. do the same thing and you're not living. You've lost that. And what Mike was really saying was, is that you're not realizing what that true opportunity is because you're not living. And once you, you, you're in that space of just that hamster wheel of grinding day after day, you're not. Everything turns gray. Everything turns monotone. There's no color. And so what I realized when I made that, keep in mind, I had this full-time job. I was traveling on the, in the air over 100,000 miles every year. And I am coaching 55 athletes at the CrossFit Games for free in 2015. In 2015, there was 55. I wrote workouts every week for free. It was a monumental amount of work. And when I made that switch, I thought that there would be this, this like, concern, fear. And it wasn't. It was, it was so liberating. Ca- it was so cathartic. It was like, oh, my gosh. I don't have – do you realize I would go to Reebok training grounds? I had a full-time job. I would be at Reebok for a week. I'd be called into a meeting in Santa Clara at the highest level, and I'm in Boston. And I'm supposed to be there tomorrow, but nobody knows I'm in Boston. Yeah. The anxiety. So what would you do? I would have to take a sudden sick day. Oh, man. It was a nightmare. Like, that was the problem is, like, to be able to be in that position where it's like, wow, now I'm not even being honest in my own position. Right. Now you're, you're selling yourself short on both ends. Right. And, but the thing is, is that you think, I got it, I got it, I got it. And you think you could pull it off. And the reality is, is like when I left, it was like, wow. And then the world opened. And thank God, like in 2015, there was a lot of athletes that I worked with that did really well. I mean, a lot. And that was the thing is that I always sat there and I said, you know what? Those athletes are giving me this opportunity, but I never want to deviate from what is true to me, meaning what is my authentic position? And that is, you know what? I think I'm doing something unique. But I need to continue to validate. I need to continue to prove it. And so, like, when I had an opportunity through you to, like, coach Rich Froning, he was a huge risk. Not that I couldn't improve his running, but what if I ruined a four-times champion? Right. That was a risk. And then I ended up through Rich meeting Matt Frazier um, indirectly. And he was a risk because he had a weightlifting background. What if I made this guy weaker? The thing was, is I never changed my approach and I always took on anybody because I wanted to see whether or not these same things that I was finding in others would hold true. And the mistake would have been is that if I just stuck with you guys and said, you know what, I think I have something. I had three data points and look what they did. And I didn't. I wanted to convince myself that this was actually valid. And I was willing, and the reason why I did it because I wanted to take the risk. Don't tell me that risk is preventing me from moving forward. 
I want to do something as if I was younger and go out and actually follow who I am. Mm. Courage. Yeah. And that is a hard thing to do. When you're 56 years old, to sit there and go, you know what? We're going to start over. Wow. And so yeah. for me, like, you know what? That led to a whole series of things. I had a downsize because I had no money coming in. Zero. I had none. I was making no money in 2015 from anybody in the CrossFit space. And I had 55 people at the games. And I was coaching Frazier and Froning and, I mean, you and... I mean, Camille by that time had won the games and Katrin and I mean, that whole team of people and I had to start backing down. And that ultimately led to me selling the house in Menlo Park, which led me to, you know, moving to Tennessee. But isn't that the craziest thing that as you downsize, let me ask you a question. Chris Hinshaw in 2012 compared to 2020, where are you more happy? Oh my gosh, that's so the... Um, is that the Right. The happiness factor is you think that the, and it's really a hard concept because I'll sit and say it right now and I don't believe it. It's hard to believe you are happier by having less things. I drive a Prius. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a mini storage a at all. Like, I mean, my possessions and the things that we have is so minimalistic. I don't own a home anymore. Like, I mean, these things, and, and it's not because I can't, I could certainly go out and buy a home. But the thing is, is I like this ability, this lifestyle of being nimble and, and having flexibility to do the things I love. And that's the hardest part. Do you want to be in a job where you're grinding? And yes, you may be making overhead. I mean, making your overhead and covering your monthly costs and things. But are you happy? Are you happy? And the thing was, is I was willing to take a risk for an unknown if I knew this feeling that I'm getting now was a part of that equation, it would have been an easy jump. But you don't know because you're so clouded by where you currently are. And that's the hardest part. The hardest part is seeing that space. Yeah, I think back on those days and those conversations I had with you and Cordano, it was like, and others, you have to listen. If you are not listening, then what are you talking to them for? Because they're giving you true advice. Yeah, unbiased. Right. I think, th I think that's powerful. And so then you fast forward, you start having these seminars, online platform, and they have aerobic capacity that's crushing it. And your business now, I mean, financially, I don't know exactly how it's worked out, but I imagine there's, it's, it's just crazy. You took a small hit for a little while to maybe for long-term gains, particularly in your happiness. And I think you're a really great example of someone who's in corporate America, made a huge pivot a giant pivot yeah. and is now seeing success you never thought possible. And I think it's a really, really cool story. Thanks, man. For people that want to see more about what you're doing, you know, I know you have your seminars, you travel and you do that and you just, you're just a guy who just lives and breathes what you believe in, right? It's, it's, it's remarkable. If people want to go to one of your seminars, people want to check out more about what you're doing, where should they go? AerobicCapacity.com? AerobicCapacity.com. That's by far the best. So yeah, we do seminars around the world. I, I, do them all. Um, I love visiting the community. I love seeing what the global community is up to. Um, where is their, their inequality in the world um, in terms of their knowledge? And I really enjoy it. So I teach them all. Um, and then we also do the online programming. I, I think the online programming piece is, is appealing. But the thing that's really a charge right now for me is collaborations, like to work with others. Like I really, this community because it's this community-based approach. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you're doing stuff with with Frasier and 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 with Froning and right. I mean, you're doing all kinds of stuff. And then writing programming for a lot of people, and and you know they're selling it through their platforms. And yeah, I have a thing with Dave Durani and Chad Vaughn, but the collaboration with people in this community. There is so much happiness associated with it because there's good people. Yeah. That this space is unlike any other space that I've ever come across yeah, in my life. Good people doing great stuff. Right. Which imagine that you create greatness with a great person and the level of happiness that comes from that. And that's the thing is that every day when I remember when I would finish my days back on my job job and I would come home reluctantly because I had to stay at work to continue grinding. And then when I woke up in the morning, I was so exhausted and I would force myself to drive in and I would just start grinding again. And it was just, oh, I, let's face it, you and I, we went out to dinner two nights ago and it was like 1 a.m. But we couldn't let it go because the charge was so high. It was such a great moment. Those moments are every day. And so every day it's like you wake up and it's like, yeah, I want to go create greatness. But not, I'm not thinking about others. I'm thinking inside myself. I'm thinking this level of happiness, and that's what's driving me. It's like, you know what? I'm going to open my eyes. I'm going to listen. I'm going to pay attention because that relationship that I have, like what I did with Fraser in Europe this uh, September, that relationship is going to create an immense level of happiness during it. And selfishly, it was like, I want to do that for me. I want to live. I want to be happy, and I want to enjoy the people that I'm with to the highest level. And so like when people say to me, it's like, you know, we get feedback from our course. There's a, a, a feedback survey that we give. And, and the number one thing that people say is there's two things. One, I wish it was two more hours or there was a second day, which is incredible that they want to come back. But it's the passion. And I don't feel like I give passion at all. I don't feel like it's, I don't no, see that. I mean, I can see it. It's embodied in you. But that's where happiness comes from. And if you don't have passion, then that's telling you something. And you need to be listening to yourself. You need to be understanding why, isn't, why aren't I feeling that way? Why when I go to work, I feel like I'm grinding? Why do I feel like there's no color outside? That's what you need to be paying attention to because those are the signs. And I'm telling you, when I was in the space, I ignored all of those things. But what I did do is listen to people. I paid attention. And this community is filled with smart people. Go and talk, but pay attention. Don't waste their time. I love it. Well, Chris... Check out aerobiccapacity.com. Um, we'll put in some little show notes about where to reach you at, maybe on Instagram, et cetera. Yeah. We really appreciate it, man. That was that was very impactful. I think there's going to be a lot of people out there who are in the exact same boat as you, and they're going to look for color and not just as gray. So thank you very much. Thanks, and uh, we'll let you get back to Wadapalooza. Thanks, bro.